0: Thanks. Good morning, everyone. Merry Christmas. Uh, It takes real energy to get here after such an exhausting season of Christmas celebration, I'm sure, so I'm glad that you are all here. Uh, uh, My name's Brighton. Um, I'm in my third year at uh, Westminster Seminary, which isn't that far, Um, and I'm usually sequestered back at the sound table, um, so I'm happy they let me out of my cage uh, to come up here. And preach this morning, So, um, but it's good to be with you. So if you're new to Trinity or if you've been around Trinity in general, um, you might know that it, just in church in general, we, we do a lot of talk about the gospel. So we talk about the gospel, and the gospel means the good news, right? We talk about the gospel signific- specifically, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ who came as a baby like we celebrated yesterday, Right? Uh, this this uh, Jesus coming as God, as a baby, this is called the Incarnation, and that's what we're celebrating uh, this really all month. This is what we've been celebrating with the Advent season. If you've been uh, to some of our Advent gatherings um, and our Christmas Eve Eve service, um, you, you'll have experienced some of the Advent, the preparation for Jesus being born. And so uh, this is kind of where we're going to pick up today. And this good news isn't just simply that he was born, but it was that he went to the cross, that he did what we could not do, and that he died to pay for our sins, right? So often when we talk about the gospel, we start with Jesus, which is good, right? Don't hear me say, don't talk about Jesus. Always talk about Jesus. But have you ever stopped to ask, why? Why Jesus? Why was Jesus born? What was the point? How does it fit in with the rest of the Bible? Do do we we even need the Old Testament? Because if we are just talking about Jesus, then we just start in Matthew and then ignore everything before that? Why was Jesus born? This is what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about the gospel. We're going to talk about the good news of Jesus Christ. But we're going to start from the very beginning. So if you have your Bible... You can go ahead and turn uh, to Genesis chapter 3, and I'll be reading the whole chapter, but we're going to mostly focus on verse 15, and if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you, and that is on page 3. Genesis is the very first book in the Bible, and that's why you go to seminary, to learn things like that. Um, So I'm going to go ahead and read uh, all of chapter 3 and grab a Bible, follow along, and we'll dig in. and made them made themselves loincloths and they heard the sound of the lord god walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the lord of the lord god among the trees of the garden but called to the man and said to him where are you and he said i heard the sound of you in the garden and i was afraid Because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, well, the woman that you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit. She gave me the fruit of the tree and and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, "What, what is this that you have done? And then the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain shall you eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam for, made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, "Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil, now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of uh, life and eat and live forever. therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden, he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword, and that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken. You have not left us alone, but that you speak to us this morning. God, I pray that um, you would convict us where we need conviction this morning, that you would, um, that you would encourage us where we need encouragement God, and ultimately that you would uh, fix our eyes on you, that the words of my mouth would fall dead to the floor, and your word would stand as the only thing that is left, God, and may it be to your glory and in your name we pray, amen. So th- there's a lot going on here, I mean, Genesis 3, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, there's, there's several sermons that we could do, uh, probably that would last until, you know, the end of time, but Today we're going to talk uh, about the creation story. We're going, to, we're going to get into the narrative and answer the question, why Jesus? We're going to look at Genesis 3.15 and we're going to see the biblical reason for the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So we're going to go on a journey and uh, I'll give some context. We'll get into chapter 3 and we'll talk about verse 15 specifically. But here's the big idea and it should come on the screen and it's really simple this morning. It's this, our sin leads to death, but the incarnation of Jesus Christ leads to life. Genesis is a book of beginnings, that's what Genesis means. Take a look at Genesis 1.1 as we talk about this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. See, Before there was anything, before anything existed at all, God was there. And God created it, God spoke light into existence and and can you imagine speaking something into existence no you can't because that's God's thing like God is the one who created the heavens and the earth he created the plants created the animals created you created me this was the pinnacle of his creation was mankind. Adam, was his, Adam and Eve were his, were his masterpiece. He, he declares that all of his creation is good. The plants, the animals, everything's good. But when he gets to Adam and Eve, he says, oh, behold, it is very good. I mean, he, he breathed life into Adam. And, and they bear the image of God. They are God's glory. They have borne the image of God in this earth. We need to get something straight here. Genesis 1 through 3 is not a fairy tale. Genesis 1 through 3 is history. This is not a myth. This is what happened. This is what the Bible teaches. This is our history. Our God is real. Our God is the one who created all things that exist. Sometimes we like to pretend that we don't, you know, owe anything to anyone. But in fact, without him we would not exist. There is no existence that is not upheld by God. The fact that you're here, the fact that you're breathing, is because of God. When God created everything in Genesis 1, he created it to be good. Creation is God's good gift. And when he, play, when he creates man, he places him in the Garden of Eden. Now, the Garden of Eden, for context, we need to know there's something really important going on about the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden is a type of the temple. So in the Old Testament, The temple was where the presence of God dwelt. So the garden is where the presence of God dwells. So he creates man in the image of God, and he places him into the Garden of Eden to dwell with God. He commands him to work and to keep, to be fruitful and to multiply. And the idea here is that Adam and Eve would work the garden. The garden would then expand, and expand until the point where it took over the whole earth. And at that point, they're spreading God's glory. They're spreading God's uh, presence all over the world, right? This is the garden was going to grow. He created them to expand his glory, to, to, to expand the garden, of, to expand the glory of God who, who created all things that exist. Now, he gives Adam freedom, right? He gives Adam this freedom to roam the garden in the presence of God. He can eat from any tree. He can eat from any tree. But he has but really one exception. And he cannot eat from the tree that's in the midst of the garden, which will later be called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. God's condition here is clear. He sets Adam up. He says, you know, everything's for you. You, you have dominion over it. Now, uh, just you can't eat from this one tree. And the consequence will be death. This is the one command that God gives to him. Because when they ate from the tree, they will surely die. This is what we see. Now, we know the story. We know what happens. And even if you aren't a Christian, even if you have been to church maybe once or twice, you, you probably still know the story. They break that law, right? We get to Genesis 3, like we just read. So go ahead and turn to Genesis 3. And in verse 1, very first verse, we see a new character enter into the story. Up until this point, it's really just been God, Adam, Eve. Um, but here we have the serpent. And the serpent uh, is more crafty than any uh, than any of the things, but he's still uh, a creature that God has made, which is interesting. He's not just a snake, right? Seems like he comes out of nowhere and then he speaks and Eve's not like, that's weird, right? Like. But here's the thing, we know from looking at Revelation 12.9 uh, that this serpent is more than just a snake, that it's actually, in, in this is Revelation 12.9 now, that it's actually the great dragon that was thrown down, the ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. See, Satan was cast out of heaven because he wanted to be in control. He wanted to be God but he's not God, he was created by God, right? So he attacks God's glory, he attacks God's image, he attacks God's creation, he attacks Adam and Eve here in Genesis uh, chapter three. And the temptation that he offers in Genesis chapter three is all too familiar to us. This repeats over and over and over again and we see it in our own lives and it consists of a few, a few key elements um, which will be on the screen, uh, and I'm going to go through them one by one. First, we see that God's word is attacked. He said to the woman, "Did God actually say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden?" This is verse. Uh, this is verse one. Still, oh, you, you, you didn't. I mean, surely, surely, God didn't really say this, right? I mean, how many times have you heard the same thing? How many times have you heard this, right? The same temptation. Whether you're a Christian or not, or maybe you're not a Christian, and this is kind of what you think, right? Like, God didn't really say that, you know, abortion was murder. He didn't say that, did he? He didn't really mention marijuana. He didn't mention, you know, hard drugs. He didn't mention cocaine. He didn't mention any of that stuff explicitly. So he he must not really care. Or, Or maybe this one. Show me in the Bible where it says that gay marriage is wrong, where it says that homosexuality is a sin, And sometimes that even needs to be red-lettered, right? That needs to be the words, very words of Jesus. See, the temptation here is to ignore the Word of God. And to be clear, all of these things have biblical relevance. The Bible speaks to these things, even if they're not explicitly mentioned. The Bible still speaks to them. That is like several different sermons. But the point here is this, that temptation to sin, often looks like a challenge to our understanding of who God is, our understanding of theology. And so if you're a Christian here today, uh, let me encourage you this morning not to ignore your theology, not to ignore reading God's Word, to know what God's Word says and what it doesn't say. It's just as important. This only stokes a deep love, it not only stokes a deep love for God, but will also help you fend off from the temptation to sin and help you share the gospel more boldly with those in your life. See, theology, it's not just for the pastors. It's not just for the nerds at Westminster. Uh, It is essential for the Christian. You have a theology, whether you like that word or not. You have a theology. You have something that you believe about God, but what is it? Is it what the Bible says? Uh, let me quickly uh, plug for you. Uh, we've already mentioned it, but the mobilized class is just a real practical step. If you haven't picked one of these up, they are in the back, and it has a nice little schedule. But this is a great way to start. Our mobilized class will be starting a series on, on what Christians believe. Just a really uh, a nice, easy introduction to, uh, to theological terms, theological concepts, what the Bible says. What does a Christian believe? What does it mean to be a Christian? Uh, so I'd encourage you to check that out. That starts on January 9th, and that will be uh, before Sunday mornings from 9 to 9.45. So I would encourage you to check that out. So first, God's, um, God's word is attacked. Second, God's love is attacked. Now the serpent says, well, well you know, God, God actually isn't telling you the truth, right? This is, a, in essence, what he's saying. He says, He doesn't really love you, right? Because he knows that if you eat from that tree, um, you'll know good and evil, and and you know he's he just really doesn't want that to happen, and because look how good this fruit is. Look look how good that tree looks, right? Look at look at the 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 what you'll gain if you eat this fruit, right? You know if God loved you, he'd want you to be happy. He'd want you to have these things, right? Again, maybe you've heard the same exact temptation from the world. You know, if God loves you, he just wants you to be happy. There's no way your happiness, your emotions could lead you astray. To give a really ridiculous example of this, a really, like, crazy example of this, it's like saying that, you know, if murdering somebody makes you happy, then, you know, surely God's okay with it. That doesn't make any sense. We know this, right? So let me encourage you today that, that if you're justifying your sin by uh, because you enjoy it, um, because it feels good like this is this is the temptation sin feels good it's desirable. Eve sees the fruit she saw that it's desirable it's good for food, but she wanted it. This is what the New Testament authors can often refer to as they often refer to it as you know the ways of the world, the ways of the flesh um, and and These things, they draw us in because we really do enjoy them. This is what temptation does. It it lures us in to think that God is okay with it because it makes us feel good. It makes us happy. And, you know, we've already questioned his words. We don't really, you know, have any basis to know what he does or doesn't say. And so as long as I feel like it's okay, it's okay. Lastly, and this kind of leads into this, is that God's authority is attacked. The serpent says, you will become like God. Now, of course, we know that Adam and Eve didn't actually become like God. I mean, they, they, knew, uh, they knew good and evil, but they were still the creation and not the creator. They weren't the ones that spoke everything into existence. And this temptation to become like God is really at the root of every single temptation that we have, and, and you know, it's, the, it's just the same temptation, it's the same message that our world screams to us every single day. Simple example of this, I mean, take Burger King's slogan, right? Does anybody know this? Burger King's slogan, have it your way. You like this? Nobody likes Burger King. That's fine. Um, so, but, but, but even just in that simple little way, right? You know, I, I want to have everything my way. We, we, we desire so much To have things our way. I don't need God's word. I don't even need his love. You know, in fact, I am God. In fact, I am the one who is in control. I am the one who who is in control of my own destiny, right? Or or I have the freedom to make my own choices, and I'm going to do this. I'm going to take charge. I'm my own God. And there is no other. This is a direct attack against the God who created everything. It's a direct attack against the God who stands firmly in his place as the creator and as we stand in our place as his creation still. This is the temptation that is offered in Genesis 3, and it's the temptation that we know as the story unfolds. We know what happens next, Adam and Eve... They agree. They think it looks good. Eve takes from the fruit she eats, and she gives it to her husband, and they immediately realize that they are naked. not that they weren't naked before, but now they realize that they're naked. And here's what this symbolizes. They realize that they just disobeyed God. The one command that God gave them, they've disobeyed God. they're feeling shame and guilt. And they realize they're naked, and they kind of they try to hide it. They hide their uh, their shame with little tiny fig leaves, as if that um, was good enough. Their shame, this is an expression of their guilt. It's an expression of their guilt for rebelling against creation, rebelling against what God had created to be good. Now, we would expect immediate death at this point, right? We, You know, God said when you eat from the tree, you will surely die, but they're still breathing. This death that God is referring to, it was immediate, but he's referring to the spiritual death, and obviously they are not still alive, so there was a physical death as well, but they're spiritually dead. Now, everything after this point is pure grace. God would have been totally fine just ending it right there, and it would have been a really short book, and it would have been over, right? But look at verse 8. Look at what happens. So we read one of the most comforting verses in the Bible, I think. Genesis 3.8 says, And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Adam and Eve just spit in the face of God, totally rejected him. And what does God do? He comes down to the garden, he he walks among them. And then we look at what Adam and Eve do they run. They run away from God. And they hide in their sin. They don't, they don't want to confront God. But God continues in verse 9, and he calls out. He speaks. calls out to Adam and Eve. See, when we sin, our natural impulse, when we fall to that temptation, our natural impulse is just like that of our first parents here. We want to hide. We want to run. We know what we've done. It's not a mystery. We know. We and, and Paul calls it, you know, we he says this in Romans 1 that, that we've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And everyone knows what that is. But know this. Whether you're a Christian here or not, God comes down. When you disobey God, when you spit in the face of God, when you sin against him, when you despise him, God comes down and he calls out to you and he extends grace. And what do we do with that grace? Well, again, maybe we relate to Adam and Eve and we start to play the blame game right? Adam and Eve, you know, he goes to Adam, and Adam then blames, well, you know, hey, it's that woman that you gave to me, right? He, he blames her, and then Eve's like, well, it's, it's the serpent. See, we refuse to take any responsibility for our sin. We know what it is, but, you know, eh, it's not that bad. Like, I, you know, it wasn't even my fault, right? I wonder how many times we do this still today, now, there, there, there's the curse for breaking the law of God. Now, this curse is the curse of sin. Now, but notice this. God curses the serpent, now here in verse 14. So he curses the serpent, and he curses the ground in verse 17. But he does not curse the man or the woman. Now, regardless, what does happen is that sin changes everything. Sin changes the man's relationship to his wife. It changes her relationship to him and to others. And even the very ground was cursed. All of creation itself was cursed because of sin. Sin has brought a curse in the world that we know it as we know it today. This, Genesis, the book of beginnings, this is chapter 3, the beginnings, the origin of Sin. And not only that, but but remember the Garden of Eden where this all takes place, right? The Garden of Eden where God's presence is dwelling, where God comes down and he walks with them. Well, they're kicked out. They're kicked out of the garden. They're cast out from the dwelling place of the Lord. And they can't get back in. God places the angel with a flaming sword to block the way, and their way to eternal life is cut off. Their way to... Communion with God is cut off. And now we get to what some scholars call the the proto-evangelion or the the proto-good news. This is the first mention in the Bible that salvation is coming, particularly in Jesus Christ. Sinclair Ferguson, some of you may know him, uh, says that the whole Bible, and really he adds the, the whole of history, is but a footnote to Genesis 3.15. Everything that follows this point can be traced back to Genesis 3:15. So go ahead and take a look here at Genesis 3:15 and it should pop on the screen. But Genesis 3:15 says I will put enmity between you and the woman this is the serpent so between the serpent and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. From this verse, we see the very first promise that God has promised to crush the serpent, to crush sin, to to eradicate sin. And how does he propose to do this? Through the offspring of the woman, particularly we can see uh, through a son. But which one? Which son? From Genesis 3.15 forward. There are two groups of people, still today, there are two groups of people. There are those that are the offspring of the serpent and those that are the offspring of the woman, right? I mean, if you, if you want to play this out, let's look at Genesis chapter 4 with Cain and Abel. Maybe you know this story as well. Um, I'll just quickly summarize it. So Eve has a son and she's like, surely, yes, great, a son. The Lord has given me a son. Um, surely this is the one that's going to crush the head of the serpent, right? And um, so she's really excited, and then she has Abel, and, and God's favor kind of falls on Abel. And then Cain gets jealous, and Cain kills his brother, Abel. See, instead of the offspring of the woman, we see that Cain was actually the offspring of the serpent. And Abel was the offspring of the woman. And it's this cosmic fight, right, between these two offsprings that continues throughout all of the Old Testament. And we really don't have time to go through the entire Old Testament, um, as it is quite long. But here we see that this enmity is now uh, coming forth from the offspring of the woman, offspring of the serpent. And enmity is actually often in the Old Testament used as a war, um, in terms of war, like the, the scripture that uses enmity is often nations that are going to war. They're at enmity. So there's this kind of battle language that's happening here. There's a battle going on. Um, those who follow God with each generation after this. Every time they, they have a son that's born, what do you, what do you think they're thinking? Every time that they, they have a son, what are, they're, they're thinking, this is it. This is the one. He's the one. He's going to crush the head of the serpent. He's going he's to save us. He's going to reverse the curse from Genesis chapter 3 every time. And as the story moves forward, it moves to Noah. It moves to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and King David. And they all keep expecting this promise. And God continually makes covenant promises with them, ensuring them, particularly Abraham and David. He assures them, you know, the head crusher is coming. He's coming. The seed will be born The one who is going to be born, this seed, he's called the Messiah. He's the one who would come and save the people from their sins. And his name would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. He's the one foretold in Isaiah 7.14 when Isaiah writes, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. It is this Messiah that the prophets all spoke about. It is this Messiah that the people of Israel are waiting for. It is this Messiah that will crush the head of the serpent. This is the seed of the woman that everyone is waiting for. And you feel the tension rise as you're reading the Old Testament and you, you continue to read and you see the offspring of the serpent win and you see the offspring of the woman and you're, you're thinking, I know what's going to happen, but when? Turn now to, to uh, Matthew chapter 1. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. We looked at it last week, um, but go ahead and look at verse 1. Matthew chapter 1 says this. This is the book of the genealogy of, Genesis, of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This looks a lot like Genesis 2-4. These are the generations. This is the same word, generations, genealogy, Genesis, beginnings, Genesis 2.4 says that this is the, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth, and all that was created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. You see, Genesis is the book about the beginning of everything. Matthew starts his gospel. This is the beginning, this is the genesis of Jesus Christ. Why would he say this? Well, Matthew knows about Genesis. Matthew knows about the promise from Genesis 3.15. I mean, We looked at the genealogy last week, and that's why he immediately begins with the genealogy that we looked at. We see genealogies like this all over, particularly Genesis, but also just the the Old Testament in general. And why are genealogies important? Because a woman was going to bear a son. The seed of the woman was going to come. So you kind of want to track that, right? If this is the one who's going to reverse Genesis chapter 3, kind of a big deal. You want to track that. You want to make sure you know. And this is exactly what Matthew's doing. Matthew is running through the genealogy of Jesus to say, hey, that seed from Genesis 3.15, this is him. He fits the seed of the woman. He fits the, the line of David from Abraham. This is what Matthew is doing in this genealogy. And now Jesus is born, and he's called Emmanuel, what the Messiah would be called, which means God with us. And, and after all of those years of living outside of the garden where the presence of God dwelt. After all those years of fighting sin, after all those years outside of the presence of God, minus the temple and the tabernacle, other places like that, they're not permanently dwelling with the presence of God. And now what do we see? We see that God comes to dwell with us. Not in the garden, in his home, in his holy place, but in our cursed Messed up world. Jesus' name tips us off to his rescue mission. mean we look at Genesis 3 after the sin of Adam and Eve, and God comes down to the garden. He walks in the garden, and he calls out to them in grace. And now we see Jesus coming down as a baby, the ultimate fulfillment of this this condescension, this incarnation, it's like part two, only instead of in the garden, in the presence where God's dwelling, he actually comes to us in our cursed, messed up world. And we see immediately the enmity between the seed of the serpent show its ugly head in Matthew 2.16 when Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region that who were two years or old under or who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. This battle rages on. Jesus is being attacked as a baby. Why? Because the serpent, the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman are at enmity. They're at war with one another. And Satan, the great serpent of old, knows. This and Herod, as his offspring, seeks to end it in chapter 2. And God, as we know, preserves Jesus. And then he's baptized in Matthew chapter 3, Matthew chapter 4. What do we get? We get to the temptation of Jesus, a very similar temptation in the wilderness that Adam and Eve themselves faced. Now, see, Satan comes uh, to him and he tries to tempt Jesus to sin. But look at every time that Jesus responds to Satan. How does he respond? He remembers God's word. He believes God's word. He trusts God's word, and he relies on God's authority. Now, this is really important. Jesus succeeds where Adam and Eve fail. Jesus succeeds where you and I fail. When we're being tempted, sometimes we fall. Jesus never gave in to temptation. He never sinned. He honored God's word, unlike Adam and Eve, unlike us. But when does he actually do it? When does he crush the head of the serpent? We know this is who he is, but when does he take care of this curse? The answer, and you may have seen this coming, is in the cross. See, Jesus' perfect obedience, where he succeeds, where we fail, that's really important. Uh, but the cross is also really important. Where Jesus faces the flaming sword that is blocking the entrance to the presence of God, right? This is, this is what's happening. He, he faces the serpent. This is the attack. This is the culmination. And in his death on the cross, he's struck on the heel, which, not a fatal wound. It's the heel. But in the process... Through his resurrection, he crushes the serpent in the head. A little more fatal. And this is it. This is the point. This is where sin and death is defeated. Genesis 3 is reversed. And it's great. 315. There it is. And you may be thinking, sweet. Good for him. But what does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with us today? Here's the reality, Uh, all of us, you and I, we're under that curse still. Jesus has reversed the curse and defeated it, but he has made a way for us. But we're spiritually dead, we're kicked out of the garden, we have no communion with God. We'll die physically, and when we die physically, our spiritual death will become a reality as we find ourselves cast away from the presence of God and thrown into a a literal hell with the serpent. This is the reality. Every single one of us. It's true. Not because I have a microphone. It's true because God says it's true. It's true because God's truth doesn't need us to acknowledge it to still be true. God's truth is true. His word is true. This is the bad news. Let's see, without... Beginning with the bad news? We don't know our desperate need for the good news. If we don't understand the cosmic depth of our sins and the struggle that we face, then we don't understand Jesus. If we don't understand sin, we don't understand Jesus. Jesus is the way, He is the truth, and He is the life. And He came to seek, He came to save the lost, He's the shepherd. He's the God who came to save his people. He's the one who came as a little baby. He's the one who went to the cross willingly to die in our place. He's the one who succeeds where we fail, who dies the death that we deserve. And he offers it to you. And he says to you today, he says to you every day, come and live. One of the most famous Bible verses and. Such a sweet reminder this morning. Maybe you haven't memorized, but John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Our sin leads to death. But in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, we can find life. So he is the one that reverses the curse from Genesis 3. And this morning, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus... I would just plead with you to look at his word, to repent of your sins, and to bow the knee to Jesus and not bow the knee to the serpent. So that you can look the serpent in the eyes and then look to Jesus and run. Not run away from him, but run to him. And if any of this is confusing or offensive, um, I'd love to talk to you more about that. And if you're here today and you are a Christian, I want to encourage you in a couple of ways as well. Uh, This is the gospel. This is is your salvation and and rejoice in, in the redemptive plan that God has set forth from the very beginning to save you. Like, praise God that Jesus came. This doesn't fully, right now, get rid of the temptations we face day to day. So here's my question. Are you bowing before God in your walk? Are you bowing before Jesus Christ as king? Uh, or are you bowing before the serpent? Are you, uh, do you love God or do you, do you worship God? Or do you worship the things that he's created? This is especially important in such a time of consumerism as Christmas. And we all feel it. Um, we can't help but not feel it, right? But what happens is we forget Jesus. Because we're too busy on the things that he's created. We're too busy for our desires for creation instead of the Creator. So I'd encourage you to, to kind of assess your own heart and where you're at. Now we've also seen today the importance for studying theology. I encourage you to get plugged in to go to the mobilized classes and read God's Word, know God's word, so you can fend off against temptation. And then one last point, just of hope that Christ's death on the cross was the, the blow to the serpent's head. He crushes the serpent's head. And Christ will return. And there will be a day where sin is no more. Where, where it's actually realized. Where we do not experience death. But here on earth we continue to rebel against God. And this weird in-between, this already but not yet, as some scholars call it, where it's already finished, but it's not yet realized. And I I want to encourage you that the only source for this, because you don't want to do it, that's the reality. The only source for this this power to fight sin is through God's word and through prayer. If it were left up to us, we just we wouldn't. We need God to help us, so I'd encourage you to pray daily, to, to read God's Word daily, to, to have the strength to fight sin. And I know this was a whirlwind, I know it's a very large flyby of a very long, intricate story, um, but I hope today you at least got a glimpse of a bit of the, the why of Jesus. As we celebrate Christmas year-round, right? Not just yesterday, but why it matters that Jesus came into the world as a baby to crush the head of the serpent, to free us from sin and death, to give us life in him. This, this is the gospel. This is the good news. May it never leave your thoughts and may it always leave your lips as you share the gospel boldly. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you uh, so much for your word. We thank you for your love. God, that you didn't leave Adam and Eve in the garden and, or kick them out and just say it's over, it's done, but that you promised right there and then from the beginning of time that you were going to send your son Jesus to die to save us from our sin. So God, we, we praise you and we thank you and we pray that you would convict us of our sin daily, that we would turn to you, love you more, and uh, glorify Your name as we share uh, the news of the incarnation, where Jesus was born as a baby for us. And pray this in Your name, Amen.